Well, um, we're going to be opening God's Word uh, together, and we're in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, um, why don't you grab them? We're in verses 17 uh, to chapter 5, verse 20. Um, But I wonder if you noticed anything a little bit different about me this morning. Maybe something that feels a little bit off. I think Russell Russell knows what I'm talking about. Maybe it's because, you know, I'm I'm wearing shorts and and a T-shirt and we're coming into winter, right? Seems a bit odd. Uh, Or maybe it's because I'm... Bare feet, you can see my toes. I'm wearing sort of flowery shorts and a t-shirt, and I'm about to preach in my pajamas. I actually had the idea of coming in my pajamas, and my wife and her wisdom said that wasn't a good idea. Uh, and I, I, will, I follow her wisdom. Why, why does this feel a bit off to us? I think it feels off because this, what I'm wearing, right, is not consistent with what I would normally wear if I was going to preach. I mean, it's nowhere near kind of the sharpness or level of dress that Brad has, right? I mean, I I haven't even got to the point of suit pants. I'm still kind of black jeans and and a button-up top. Um, But I'm learning, you know? I'll I'll get there. But this dress code, right, it's not consistent with what you would expect for the role that I would have this morning. You would probably expect me to be wearing something like that, which is what I'd normally wear, right? Some pants uh, and um, button-up shirt, you know? Look, look a, bit more, uh, a bit more presentable. The funny thing is that uh, you can ask the staff, this is what I'd normally wear and be wearing if, uh, if I was in the office. Right? This is my comfortable wear. Um, but not when I'm preaching. Right? Not when I'm preaching. Because we choose the clothing that we wear depending on the role that we have or the situation that we're in. Right? So I'm not going to wear a singlet and stubbies to a wedding. Hopefully. And hopefully none of you guys do either. That's a bad idea. Don't do that. But at the same time, I'm not going to go have a day on the farm wearing, you know, my wedding suit. Policemen, when they come off their shift, they take off their police uniform and they put on their normal everyday clothes. And when someone goes to prison, they take off their normal everyday clothes and they put on prison uniforms, right? We strive to have our clothing be consistent with our situation. And so what I wanted to do this morning to kind of kick off this talk was to visually show you what Paul's big idea is in this passage this morning. You see, our behavior needs to be consistent with who we are, just as our dress needs to be consistent with the situation or the role that we are in. And what Paul does in this passage here in chapter 4 is he uses clothing language to describe the change in behavior that occurs depending on the change of person. He uses clothing language to describe the change in behavior depending on the change of person. So we're going to read the passage together. It's a bit of a long one, uh, but hopefully you'll stick with me. Have you got your Bibles? Grab them out. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 17 to 520. Verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. 
That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, pure, or greedy person, such, as a, uh, such, a, person, sorry, such a person is an idolater, has inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it's said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ shall shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the, what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you reckon it's going to be a long sermon? <laughs> it won't, hopefully. Um, why don't we pray, hey, as we uh, look at this passage together? Father, we thank you for your word and that you have revealed yourself to us in it. Thank you that we can know you personally, not as some sort of distant deity or force, but as our Father who loves us. And that is just so amazing. Father, as we come to this passage now, would you give us really soft hearts to hear from you? Would you give us the ability to reflect on our lives and our attitudes and our minds and our desires? to be able to see where we are living consistent with who we are and where we are not. 
And I pray that you would give me wisdom and clarity as I speak, that I'd be faithful to your text and helpful and edifying in my words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a little bit of a context, because we haven't been in Ephesians for a few weeks, uh, but um, we've been doing a side-by-side series with the church and then the book of Ephesians titled, Bought to Life, Bought Together. And really what Paul is doing here in Ephesians is explaining really what the church is, what it means to be in God's family, right? That we are a, a, a people who have been brought to life from death and brought together from division. And uh, the, the structure of the book is the first three chapters Paul has been talking about who we are. Right? That we um, are his people, that we have been given uh, every spiritual blessing in Christ because of what Jesus has done. And then from chapters 4 through to 6, Paul goes, Therefore, because of who you are, here's how you should live. And it's really practical. And, and, and this is where we find ourselves, right in the middle of that, that second section here in this passage. And so... Chapter 4, 17 to 520 uh, is structured a bit like this, and this is how we're going to look at it this morning. Paul, uh, before talking about the new behavior that we should display as his people, wants to remind us that this new behavior is grounded in our identity, who we are. So he begins with our new self, reminding us who we are. Then he goes through a list of a whole bunch of different behaviors that are inconsistent, and then their opposite, that are consistent with who we are, and he finishes by giving us the motivation for our behavior. Why should we live this way? Why should we obey? So that's where we're going uh, this morning, and we're going to kick off uh, in verse 17 in our new self. And Paul really shows us in, in the first verse, in verse 17, what the focus of this next section is about. Have a look with me in verse 17. Paul says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. So he's using the authority of the Lord. He's saying, this isn't coming from me, but I insist on this in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Paul here is talking about, I want to focus on how we live. And what he does is he contrasts two different uh, uh, two different identities, right? Who we were before we knew Christ and now who we are uh, with Christ. And he does that from verse 18 to 19. He says, so don't live the way that you did as uh, you did with the Gentiles, right? How the world was living. But from verse 18, he, and he tells us why, he says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So Paul's saying, before you knew Christ, before you were saved, you had rejected God's known truth, right? You were blind to God's goodness, to his grace. You were separated from his life, and you were living in the pursuit of your senses, right? Sensuality. But then have a look in verse 20. He says, that, however, is not the life that you learned. You see, the the Ephesian church have had a transformation happen. They are no longer living without God. They are now living with God. That is not the way that you learned. Verse 21, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, 
You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, the Ephesians had heard and had been taught the truth of Jesus. And that had resulted in them renewing their mind, changing the attitudes of their mind. And instead of pursuing uh, their senses and sensuality, they pursued righteousness and holiness. And so what Paul is saying here is a transformation has occurred. When I first was looking at this passage, um, and I think as I've glanced at it before, I thought that Paul's main command was put off the old self and put on the new self. But that's not actually what he's commanding. You see, he says, you were taught that Uh, You were taught in regards to putting off your former way of life, your old self, and to put on the new. Paul is talking about something that has already occurred. The old self's gone. The new self has been put on. And that happened at conversion, right? When we first put our trust in Jesus. And so in verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, because this putting off of your old self and putting on of your new self has occurred, put off the behavior that isn't consistent with your new self. Put off the behavior that isn't consistent with your new self. And so we get to verse 25. Having established the grounds for uh, the change in behavior, Paul goes through a list here of behaviors that a Christian should be showing. And and it should be noted here that Paul is serious, serious about holiness. And actually, so is God. And I think sometimes when we come to these lists of Christians should do these things and shouldn't do these things, I don't know about you, but sometimes I just find myself kind of skip over them a little bit. Like I kind of skim them and go, well, none of these are real majors in my life, and and I kind of get on to the rest of the passage. But I think we need to feel Paul's seriousness here uh, as he lists off these different behaviors. You see, in verse 17, Paul Paul says, don't live any longer this way. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, follow God's example, walking as Jesus did. The ESV says, imitate Christ. And then there's a warning in verse 15 of chapter 5, says, be very careful how you live. God cares about how you live. He cares about how, right? You, You are a child of God. God cares about your behavior. And so Paul here highlights six different uh, behaviors that are not consistent with the Christian life. And what I want us to do is um, something, I don't know, I haven't done it before, but um, I want us to not just skim over this. So what I want you to do is I want you to spend 20 seconds in the quietness of your own head, and I want you to look through this list and think through maybe the last week, maybe the last two weeks if you need to. What on this list pops up as you think over the last two weeks. I'm going to give you 20 seconds. I want you to think about the last two weeks for a second. I don't think we often give ourselves enough time to be able to reflect on our motivations, on our attitude, on our lives. 
But that's what this list, I think, requires of us. Hopefully, right, there were things on this list that have sprung to mind over the last two weeks. Because if they didn't, then you're probably guilty of the first one, right? This is part of the Christian life, being still a sinner and struggling with sin. This list is relevant to all of us, every single person sitting here in this room. And so we're going to go through them together. Um, where some of them will go into a little bit more depth and others will kind of have a couple of comments, but we'll, we'll kind of keep moving on. But I want us to just note as we kick into it, all of these behaviors on this list are involved in relationship, right? These, these aren't behaviors that are issues when we're sitting on our own, but as we're relating to one another. And I think that's, that's a, a specific point of Paul's, right? He's writing to the church, And he wants unity in the church and understanding who they are and how they are to act. And this list causes disunity at the very least. So they're to do with relationship. Let's uh, go through them together. Paul kicks off by talking about lying. He says you're to put off lying and instead you are to put on telling the truth. You see, at the core of unity is trust. And at the core of our faith is a commitment to and a love for truth. Lying is not consistent with the new person that we have become. And it's one of the easiest ways and most uh, vicious ways of destroying unity. Lying. It's important that we have a reputation of being honest and having integrity, not just amongst one another, but also out in the community. That guy, that guy goes to the chapel, he calls himself a Christian. He, he, that guy's a liar. He's lied to me. It, do, it doesn't work, right? The clothing doesn't match the person that we've become. You know, I had a real problem with lying when I was uh, younger, and I still have to really keep an eye on it um, now. But I can remember one time when um, I was in primary school, and I'd walked out of school, and one of my friend's dads was at a car, one of the cars parked up, and as I walked past, he said, hey, Lyndon, you know, how you going? And I don't know why I said this. I have no idea. But I was like, not very good. Our house burnt down last night. <laughs> oh, man. And, and he believed me. And he was going, I am so sorry. So he came and found my mom and he said, I can't believe it, what happened? I said, what are you talking about? Your house burnt down, told me. house didn't burn down. And I, <laughs> I had to apologize. And I have no idea why I said that, right? I'm, I'm a sinner, man. I'm such a sinner. <laughs> but that will stay in my mind forever. The thing is, it doesn't matter whether it's a big lie, right? Like that, is, that was a bad one, right? Versus just a tiny little, you know, I didn't tell all the truth or, 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 or maybe, uh, you know, I didn't mean to deceive, right? We need to be committed to telling the truth. And anything but the truth is not the truth. Small or large, speak the truth. Uh, that's in verse 25. Um, next, Paul says, put off losing your temper and put on righteous anger. And this is a really interesting one. You see, the fruits of the Spirit is, uh, at the end is self-control. And I think often we can think, hey, you know what, I don't have an anger problem. But actually, we, we, we find ourselves losing our temper a lot. 
You see, sinful anger is almost always an outflow of selfishness. And so notice uh, that Paul says in verse 26, he says, in your anger, we haven't got verse numbers up there. He says, in your anger, do not sin. And then continues to keep talking. You see, I think what Paul is saying here is, don't sin in anger, rather put on righteous anger. I don't know, we, we don't really talk about that too much, but when we're talking of righteous anger, we're talking of being angry at the things that God is angry at, right? So evil and sin, we should be angry. A righteous anger towards evil, towards sin, injustice, exploitation, those are things that should bring within us righteous anger, and I think maybe we don't often have enough of this. We don't always share in God's hatred of sin, but are often apathetic. And so what Paul says is that in our righteous anger, here's three safeguards or warnings for you to not kind of step across the line uh, into losing your temper. First, he says, in your anger, do not sin. So there's going to be no pride, no revenge, no greed behind our anger. We need to check our hearts, right? Our anger shouldn't overflow so quickly that we don't have a chance to evaluate the motives. That's losing your temper. That's not having self-control. But rather, when anger is within us, we should have the ability, right? if it's, if it's righteous anger, to be able to evaluate what's going on here. Is there sin behind this? Is there greed or revenge behind this? In your anger, do not sin. Secondly, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's saying, don't let your anger fester. Don't let it smolder away, right? Let it achieve its purpose and then put it to bed when the time is needed. Lastly, he says, beware of Satan. You see, Satan knows that there's a very fine line between righteous anger and sinful anger. And he knows that we struggle with that line. And so Paul says, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Satan knows that we love revenge, right? I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this, right? But if someone has wronged me and I'm angry at them, right, I will just sit in this anger, and in my head, I think I'm, I'm, I've got revenge, right? Because eventually they will know that I'm angry, and then they'll feel guilty, and they'll apologize and come say sorry to me, right? But I sit in that anger for more time and more time and more time until, you know, eventually I realize the person doesn't even know that I'm angry. But what I haven't realized is that that has led to bitterness. And the problem with bitterness is you're the only one who loses. No revenge is... Uh, given out to the person. Bitterness, we always lose. Don't justify your sinful anger. We're going to keep going. Paul next says, uh, do not steal, rather be generous. Uh, In verse 28, and I will read verse 28 because it's interesting here. It says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. It's interesting that Paul says, uh, don't steal, but rather work so that you can provide for your family, but also so that you can give, so that you can be generous and share with others. The antidote for stealing. Next, Paul says in verses 29 to 30, 
Put off harmful speech, but put on speech that builds up. And we're going to sit here just for a little bit because I think uh, it's worth unpacking what Paul says here. Often when I've read this part, this, this verse uh, to uh, not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. I, my, my brain goes to swearing. And I think often it's kind of a, a bit of a go-to for swearing. But as we look at what Paul says to put on, you see, Paul says, uh, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You see, unwholesome talk is more than swearing. It includes gossip. It includes speech that tears others down. It includes jokes that are at people's expense. Mean speech, passive aggressiveness, and judgmental speech. The ESV calls it corrupt speech. And, you know, I think this is, this is a massive one for churches. This is a huge one for churches. You see, we live in a world that is full of corrupt speech, right? And it is pushed on us 24-7. There's TV shows that make money off gossip, right? It's in magazines. It's, it's all over the place. Even our news starts to move towards that sort of direction. And the thing is, we live life in a church, right? And so we walk shoulder to shoulder one, uh, with one another, being in each other's lives. And so there is a lot to gossip about, Right? Because we're sinners. We struggle. We fail. We wrong one another. But Paul says, speak only what builds others up and benefits others. This is really hard. And you know, I think this can actually be really hard for being in a small town, right? Everyone knows everything about everyone. And everyone knows who's related to everyone. And, and it's, it's great. But some of that probably isn't godly, right? You see, there's a difference when I say, hey, did you hear that Jim's son graduated? And he was top of his class and he's coming back next week and we're going to throw a celebration. It's going to be great, right? That's very different from, hey, did you hear that Jim's son dropped out of college? Yeah, he fell in with a bunch of just, just the wrong crowd. He's actually going to be entering rehab. But we'll pray for him. There's a big difference between those two types of speech. We cannot adopt our culture's behavior on speech. You see, gossip and, and, uh, and speech that tears down is usually to do with things that are negative, Right? When, something's, when someone's done something wrong, that's usually where gossip begins. It's not really when someone does something great, like, you know, Jim's son graduating. Here's the thing. If our desire is for people in that situation who have, who have fallen, who are struggling, who have done something wrong, if our desire is that they would uh, come to repentance, come to forgiveness, and be restored to one another, the one they wronged, to the church family, whatever, that should be our desire, Right? If that's our desire, corrupt speech about that person makes that go so much harder and sometimes to the point of impossible. You see, if I've done something wrong, right, and then everyone knows about it, and then everyone has an opinion about it, the process of me coming back to restoration and asking for forgiveness and repenting is so difficult. 
Because I might clear it up with the person that I'm talking to, but no one else knows that. Our speech affects the process of seeing people come back to restoration. I want to give you a couple of verses. Uh, James 3 says, The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest uh, is set on fire by a, small, by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Whoa. I, I can honestly say I struggle to tame my tongue. Right? I do not have much of a filter between my head and my mouth. I'm a verbal processor, and I will talk your face off. I really struggle with this grabbing my words before they come out of, a, out of my mouth like trying to grab melting ice. I just can't grab them and then they're gone. I mean, this is really hard. But check this verse out. I love this verse. Let this just wash over you, right? The words of, a reckless, uh, of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Don't you love that? The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So let me ask you this morning. Does your speech bring healing? Does all your speech bring healing? Does your speech build others up? Because that should be the question that we always ask before we open our mouths. To do with gossip, ask, ask ourselves, would I be comfortable saying this with the person being in the group, not behind their back? I think this is big because we don't talk about it much and I think the pressure from our culture on us on this issue is enormous. It's massive. But our words have the uh, powerful harm and for great, uh, great good. It can pierce or it can heal. We're going to keep going nice and quickly. Um, I just lost it. Paul next says, uh, in verse 31, to put off unkindness and bitterness and to put on uh, kindness and love. In verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, he says, put off joking about sex and put on giving thanks for it. And so Paul doesn't just say there, put off sexual immorality, right? To live uh, in line with how God has designed sex. But he says, don't joke about sex. Don't have coarse language and filthy jokes and, and, and discussions about it. But rather, give thanks for something good that God has made. It's not the discussion to be had around God's people. Why should we care? Why should we care? I think Paul gives us two reasons, and I'm just going to mention them because I'm way out of time. Uh, they're gone. Paul gives us two motivations for why we should have this behavior. At our youth group, small group last week, uh, one of the boys said, if I've been saved by faith and not by works, why should I care about works? Why should I care about my behavior if I'm already saved? That is a really good question. 
And Paul gives us uh, about four different answers in this passage, but we'll just, we'll just mention two. Firstly, the first reason is because there is certain judgment for those who are immoral. Verses 5 to 7 uh, in chapter 5. Paul says, For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, for such person as idolatry, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, this is not talking about the person who's making mistakes, right? I'm struggling. I've made another mistake, but there's a heart of repentance, right? It's understanding that and coming to restore that with God. But it's the person who's just, just fine living in that sin. There's no shame, there's no, there's no guilt, there's no desire to change, but it's just, just fine, just happy. God calls that person an idolatra. And the warning is that all sin will be punished. Right? God doesn't give us the consequences for all our sin now because he is patient, but a time will come, no sin is hidden. He doesn't forget. Because it's personal, it's towards an almighty God. Second one. In verse 8 to 10, and I really want to emphasize this before I finish. Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. He doesn't say, You were once darkness, now live as children of light, and then you will be light. The order is really, really important. Live who you are, don't live in order to be who you are. Because that's every other religion, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholicism. I've got to earn my way into heaven. I'll live this way and then God will love me. That's not what this passage says. You are already a child of light, therefore live as light. And there's a little verse right at the end that I'm going to leave us with in verse 10. And find out what pleases the Lord. The motivation should be to put a big smile on our king's face. So closing with a question, are we as a church going to be a people who are pretty good Christians, right? We get along with our neighbors, we give back to the community, we're described as nice people, or are we going to be a people who pursue holiness, who are committed to godliness because we know how important our God takes it and we know what it shows of him? We don't judge ourselves by what others say or how others view us, but based on what God sees when he looks at our heart. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you and praise you that you are almighty God. You are so far above us, perfect and holy. And as we look at you, we are so aware of our own brokenness. And so it just amazes us that you would cause, call us children, not because of anything that we've done, before we even change our actions. You would call us children as we have faith in your son. We thank you so much for your free gift of salvation to us. And Father, would you help us as we uh, take a look at our lives and a, a look at our motivations. Help us to line those up to your son to have a motivation of pleasing you as a response to what you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.